welcome back to the podcast, our second week of listening to uh, the sermon that I preached at Crossway Baptist. This is the second sermon, and I talked about engaging with lostness and uh, Jesus' perspective, especially from Luke 15, of how to uh, engage with lostness, and uh, from the scriptures and reflections from Luke 14 to Luke 16. Um, I trust you enjoy this as I go back into the archives of our missionary training, as it were, and share some stories and what God uh, taught us as we had time in Mumbai. God bless and enjoy this uh, podcast. Such a blessing to be with you and, uh, and to follow on from last week for those uh, online I wonder if Scott and Sarah uh, are watching online. I know they were watching last week, so g'day, Scott and Sarah. Good to see you. And all those online, and those in Brighton campus, and uh, also Southeast, great to be with you. And uh, my, my blessing to follow on from last week as we talked about mission and, uh, and Crossway's mission focus, Crossway's DNA. And uh, last week we talked about um, Jesus' last words forming our core identity as disciples and the church. Mission is not something that just a few people do, but mission is something that we are all called to. It's our DNA that Jesus didn't speak to his disciples and set aside a department, but he said to all of them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And that's Jesus standing up in our midst today and speaking that. And he also breathed on them and said, receive The Holy Spirit. He has empowered us for the work of mission. And his empowering is there for you today uh, into the work of mission. Today, uh, I will be uh, asking you to engage with lostness. Jesus was all about engaging with lostness. And when I use the term lostness, it's not a pejorative word for people out there. It's, it's God's heart for all of humanity. It's God's heart for all of us that we're all lost. But he made a bridge that we could actually come back to the Father and know him. And he invited us back into relationship with him. So lostness is something that includes you and me. But it's also for the, for the whole world that lostness was being engaged. And as we stand at the edge of a broken and lost world. We join with Jesus as he was training his disciples to do mission. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. How true are those words? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Nearly 8 billion people on the planet today, about 30% of them belong to some sort of Christian adherence, even by nationality. But, you know, about 40% of the world don't have a chance to hear about Jesus. Locked up into nearly 8,000 unreached people groups, growing up in culture and people that are never going to have a chance to hear about the gospel unless someone goes. Unless there is the missionary activity of Jesus' church hearing his words, as the Father sent me, so I send you. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers, to send forth workers into his harvest field. The harvest field is God's. Jesus says, go. That word go is a forceful word. 
It's the same word that, that he, he uses when he casts out demons and he tells them to go. And he turns around to his disciples and he says, The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, I'm sending you out like lands amongst the wolves. You're to go. And there's, there's forcefulness and spiritual authority in those words of Jesus as he calls us to go into mission. He calls us out. And I want to draw you in today. Last week we talked about our work around Australia and planting discovery groups in far north Australia and all different kinds of communities and around the globe and what God is doing today. Today I want to go back a few years into the, into the learning classroom that Colleen and I had of how God called us into mission and how God trained us. You see, I didn't really learn mission from a book or a classroom or going to Bible college. But God called us into the city of Mumbai as a family. And we went into there and on those dusty streets, on the, in, the, in the congested uh, slums of Mumbai, we were learners and we were students as we saw God move and do some powerful things. And I want to draw you into some of those stories of how God trained us into mission and how God calls us all into engage with lostness and his heart for people. Mumbai was a, is a fantastic city. It's a city about the size of the population of Australia and a 30 k's long, 15 k's wide. It's one of the most densely populated places on the planet. And about over 50% of that city lives in slums. It's an incredibly challenging place. And as we arrived in the city, we started to prayer walk around the city and felt thoroughly overwhelmed, thoroughly out of our depth, and thoroughly, uh, how is God going to do stuff? And then we started to see God doing stuff, and we learnt the lessons that mission is God's work, not ours. This is where God is working. We, we uh, worked um, and we saw God move amongst uh, Kashmiri Muslims where uh, a, a man came to the city of Mumbai. He was from Kashmir. It's not a photo of him. This is just a photo of someone that might look like him. <laughs> just for security's sake. <laughs> and uh, he, he's a son of an iman, and he, he arrives in the city of Mumbai. His father's mosque has about 7,000 people every Friday. And he arrives in, in the city to do business, and he meets one of our workers on the streets who shares Jesus with him. This man got incredibly annoyed. And then um, um, by some miracle two weeks later, he, he meets him again on, in the same railway station, shared Jesus again, and this man grabbed him by the collar, picked him off his feet and pushed him against the wall and said, stop sharing Jesus with me. Okay, said the guy, but he got his address anyway. A couple of days later, he's knocking at the door and he invites him around to dinner. This guy, the Muslim brother, could not believe it, sends him away. <laughs> and, uh, but yet Jesus did something incredible that night. As he's lying in his bed about one o'clock, um, his bed starts to shake and he goes around and wakes his friends up and says, quick, quick, there's an earthquake. They all get up, they look around, there's no earthquake, go back to bed. A bit later, his whole bed starts to shake again and the doors of his room open and in walks this person. And this, this Muslim man sits up and his eyes are wide open. He says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. And son, I love you. 
another plan for your life. And I want you to listen to these people. We learned that mission is Jesus' thing. <laughs> it's God's work, not ours. That Muslim man got up and pulled on his clothes and ran round a few blocks away where our, friend, our, our team members were and, and uh, knocked on the door and, and the door opened and he said, what are you doing up? He says, well, an hour ago, the Lord asked me to pray for you. What are you doing here? He says, well, the guy you prayed to, he came and visited me. Tell me about him. And they, they, they shared for a couple of hours and by 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning, he got on his knees gave his life to Jesus. And he, after some time and investment, became a church planter. And he, he planted churches under great persecution and duress and being beaten. And now hundreds of Muslims know about Jesus because of the works of Jesus. We were sitting there and our jaws were dropping and we're going, oh my goodness, how amazing is God. We worked in the slums of Mumbai Mumbai there has had the boast for many years of one of the largest slums in Asia, if not one of the largest slums in the world, and of, of Dharavi, you might have heard about that, but also at the edge of the city was another slum that we worked in called Mankurd. There were churches in Mumbai, of course, and the church was there. But in this one particular slum of over 300,000, it's now grown to over a million people in that slum, uh, but over 300,000 when we were there, uh, there was no churches there, and each uh, churches had been tried to be planted there. Each of them had closed down uh, through persecution. And we stood at the edge of that slum, and we prayed, and we asked God, and, and God called some of our team members to go live in that slum. So Veda and Hilda went and lived in the slum. And at first it was a bit touch and go as there was a bit of persecution. A few threats were coming and we're standing at the edge. No good us whiteys being in that slum. We just caused a big distraction. We prayed like crazy. We said, God, would you, would you do something here? Would you open up that slum? And we didn't actually know how God was going to work in that slum of Mankurd. But then suddenly God opened up on the edge of the slum uh, which often got flooded out, uh, was a man called Latubai. Let me draw you into Latubai's story. Latubai was a, was a rural man who came into Mumbai with his family to, to gain, gain some money, to have hope in life, to find work. He came in with his wife and children. Latubai was a, was worked, uh, got work as a, as a porter at the railway station, was carrying luggage and... Um, and then uh, one day tragedy stuck for Latubai that he fell in front of a train. And the train ran over his legs and literally chopped off his legs. Latubai not only lost his legs, he lost his ability to earn money and he lost his wife and kids because they left him and he ended up on the edge of this slum living under plastic considering suicide. Then one day Veda comes and shares the hope of Jesus with Latubai. Latubai accepts Jesus. And the transformation was there to behold. I met Latubai a few times and his face glowed with hope and with Jesus. He was filled with joy. 
And Lakabai was a person of peace because it was through him that numbers of churches were planted in the slums of Mankud. He, he carried himself around on, on two wooden blocks around the slum and started to share Jesus with others. And soon, not long after that, one church was planted. And then not long after that, two churches, and then three, and then five churches. And within 12 months, we had about seven churches planted in the slums of Mumbai. It was awesome. A story of hope. The story of God's gospel and using the most unlikely and ordinary people to share the gospel of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, to uh, his environment. We learned that God uses everybody. We learned that God uses the ordinary. We learned uh, the idea of the person of peace and how through one person the gospel spreads. But there was another place in Mumbai that was really the toughest place. It was the darkest place. And this was an area called Kamatipura. And Kamatipura was the area of the red light district. And at that time, it was one of the largest red light districts in Asia, if not the world. I'm not, I don't know if it's a competition or not, but it shouldn't be. A place where historically prostitution had happened for a couple of hundred years at the edge of the British settlement was now close downtown. And... Um, Somewhere between a minimum of forty to forty-five thousand girls to up to seventy or eighty thousand girls worked, and they worked literally in cages. Uh, and uh, they had a, a small cubicle with a with a, a door, a chain, uh, a cage across the front. Many of them were young. Many of them were children sold into prostitution. It was the worst form of human slavery. As these young girls were sold from Nepal and the surrounding districts of India, and they were sold in at the age of 9, 10, 11, and 12. And it was in this time that uh, AIDS was, was rampant. HIV was sweeping through these communities. And it was a really dark place. Organized crime abounded and held these girls into a form of slavery that made your heart weep. And we prayer walked, obviously, went into that area. We had stones thrown at us, and I frankly withdrew from that area saying, I don't know what we can do here. This is too hard. This is way too hard. But Jesus was weaving his story for the girls of Kamatipura. Jesus had hope. You see, those, those girls, they uh, were often young girls and had children, and they would often drug their children and put them under their beds while they were engaging in prostitution because they didn't want to obviously be disturbed. There's another story that goes concurrent with this one, and that was the story of Vera. Vera was a young Indian lady who, uh, she grew up in Mumbai in a, in a fairly well-to-do or middle-class Indian family, and they immigrated to America, as many do. To find better fortune in business and, and uh, she, she uh, ended up in America in her teens and somewhere in her late teens they discovered Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus along with her family and followed Jesus and it wasn't long before Jesus started to knock on the door of her heart and call her back into the city of Mumbai. After some time she obeyed the call of mission to go and she ended up, and we ended up in my little office there, and we were talking, and she wanted to go back into Kamatipura. 
initially I was a little sceptical. This young, sweet Indian lady uh, giving up everything from America and coming back in into this darkest of places that we could do anything. And then she suggested that we start a daycare centre. Honestly, I was sceptical. I was a little resident. We were planting churches. God was doing some amazing things. What, a daycare centre amongst prostitutes, really? But she went in and we rented a place and suddenly the, the children were coming. These uh, out of control uh, children of prostitutes were coming and being fed and were being taught hygiene and some basic education. And soon she was running, running a night care centre as well because where do the children go? Place, a safe place to sleep. And it was not long after that that God really challenged me and did me in. He caught me off guard. Because soon the prostitutes, the ladies, the young ladies started to come. And they started to read the Bible together. And they started to worship Jesus together. And they started to share Jesus with others, their friends, and it started to grow. And suddenly we had a a group of prostitutes gathering together who were caught in indentured labour, who were caught in some slammed labour, and one day it just dawned on me, we have a church. We have a church of prostitutes. And God, God did me in. And I wept. I said, oh, how stupid am I? How hard-hearted am I? That I did not see what God was doing. I did not see his heart for lostness and how he could do this. In Luke 15, verses 1 to 10, we see the story of the lost sheep and the lost coins. And I just want to read it to you. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And he comes home and he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have lost. I found my sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Wow. What does heaven celebrate? What does heaven celebrate? Lostness being restored to God. That's where the celebration of heaven is. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and seek, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbours, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy. Before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Time does not permit us to pursue the, the, the full context of the scripture because really this narrative starts in Luke chapter 14. 
goes to 15 and then ends in 16. And in, in uh, the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is turning up into a Pharisee's house, into the rulers, uh, uh, the high religious officials. He heals someone, inappropriately they think, because he heals on the Sabbath. And then he, he tells them, he notices they are concerned about prestige and position. He tells them, when you give a feast, make sure that you invite the poor, the crippled and the lame, and you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. And one of the Pharisees, uh, or teachers of the law, leaned over on the table as they were eating food. And he says, isn't that going to be great, Jesus, when we eat bread in the kingdom of God? And Jesus didn't disagree with him. He agreed and he says, yes, but he turned it right round on his head as he spoke this parable, the parable of the wedding banquet. He says, there was one day a master who gave a wedding banquet and he called to his friends and says, come, celebrate with me. And, and the response was, I can't. You know, I've bought me a field, I've bought me a cow, I'm about to get married. Don't, I can't come right now. I've got investments and wealth that I need to pursue, business and productivity, family and relationships. I just don't have time for this stuff. So the master, Jesus said in the parable, got really angry. He said to his servant, go out and and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant went out and says, master, it's done. And the master says, is my house filled yet? The servant says, no, there's more space. And the master master said to the servant, oh, then go. Go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. For my house must be filled. Wow. Jesus turned around the Pharisees and the Sadducees' hope, their eschatology of the end times, the resurrection, the new life that is coming into the urgency of mission. Not be satisfied with your position. Not be satisfied with where you're up to. Not be just thankful for your salvation. But there is a bigger picture here. And the picture is the Father's longing. The Father's longing for all those who don't necessarily fit in with you to come into my house. He goes on a story about the cost of being a disciple. And then we read in Luke 15 the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then that amazing story, which I don't have time to read, of the lost son, giving us a framework of relationship with God that was so radical and amazing, the father and his son. In chapter 16, he goes on, and at the end of chapter 16, he talks about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he says, there was a rich man. He had everything he needed. He had fine clothes. He ate sumptuously food every day. And the rich man uh, was a self-made man. He was confident of his position because of his wealth and his position in society. We don't know his name, but at his gate, we do know somebody's name. His, His name was Lazarus. A poor man was laid at his gate. Every day they'd carry him there to beg. And Lazarus just longed for a crumb that fell off the rich man's table. But every day that rich man walked past Lazarus. He walked past the lostness that was at his gate. And then comes the end of their lives and the tables are totally flipped. When suddenly it says the rich man died and a great funeral, great honour was held for him. He was given a funeral. We see that the poor man man was whisked away by the angels of God. 
And suddenly the poor man finds himself in the bosom of Abraham or Abraham's side. Depends on what version of the Bible you have. And that's a, that was a, a symbol of the feast of Abraham, a celebration. Each one of these stories has celebration. And, and, and the, Lazarus is there celebrating with Abraham and the rich man is on the other side of a great divide in hell. And he's in being tormented by the flames and the rich man looks up and he sees Abraham and Lazarus. He says, Abraham, if you could just get Lazarus to come and give me a drop of water on my tongue, you know it's killing me down here. And Abraham says, no, sorry. It's the end of times. There's a great divide here and it's been set and he can't come. It's been set. The rich man is absolutely staggered and he says well can you can you just send Lazarus back or 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 go and warn my brothers of this place because I had no idea and Abraham says look if he didn't if they're not going to listen to Abraham uh, Moses and the prophets they're going to not even listen to someone who rises from the dead stunning stunning rebuke the point is, of all these parables, there's a few points. With eternity in mind, with heaven and hell in, in mind, that we will be judged by how we respond to lostness. We'll be judged by how we respond to lostness. You see... Jesus prioritized lostness. He talked about the shepherd of himself, the ministry. And he says, what shepherd would not do this? He would leave the 99 and go after the one. He spoke of the priority of the kingdom of God. He spoke of the priority of his own ministry. To leave the 99, to leave the comfort of, of a comfortable Christianity of a self-serving Christianity, of a self-celebrating Christianity, to go out and to find the one, to leave the 99. The priority is there. And in doing so, joining into the celebration of heaven over one sinner, over one person. You know, when Vera was in that slum and those girls were suddenly discovering Jesus, the shepherd walked into that slum in Kamatipura, picked up one of those girls and put her over his shoulder. He said, there's one. And there's another one responded, Latubai, a man who most people would walk by. Jesus said, there's my lost coin. The lost coin not just shows the priority of Jesus for the lostness, but the worth of lostness. This woman who lost something of great worth put up a plan. She lit a lamp. She swept the house and she sought until she found that lost coin. And then she called her neighbours and said, rejoice with me. Showing to us the value of lostness. God's heart for lostness. When, when, when we see the heartbeat of God for lostness, we are changed. 
True celebration is the celebration of joining in with heaven of what is lost. Colleen and I were students of mission in Mumbai. And I guess we learnt a lot. And I guess we were meant to be there as leaders, but as we started to see God turn up in a, in, in a Muslim's house and turning up in physical form, as we started to see uh, someone like Latubai uh, respond to the gospel and become a multiplier of the gospel, as we started to see the girls of Kamathipura engaged, we started to look beyond those stories and saw the very heartbeat of God. The very heartbeat of God of how he felt and what he thought and what was going on. And uh, we just uh, gave our lives for mission. Vera taught us a lot. I mean, honestly, most people who immigrate out of India and get called to go engage in one of those dark places, what were her parents thinking? Think about it. What were her parents thinking when she said, Mum and Dad, I'm, I'm going to go back in and go back and engage in that place of darkness? What a change that Jesus had brought to her life. And she, when she was there involved with those girls, she was joining in with the celebration of heaven. She was bringing an offering to God that God brought a smile to God's face. Today, I want to call us to lostness, to engage with lostness. If you are lost, if you're separated from God right where you are, you can come back and cause a great celebration in heaven by just yielding and giving your life to Jesus and saying yes to Jesus. I want to follow you. But if you've been walking with the Lord a long time and you've been just saying, well, thank you, Lord, that I'm saved and thank you that my future is secure. I call you today to buy into God's bigger picture, to buy into the vision for lostness, that God's great heart is there because, you know, life is so short and one day we will all stand before the great judgment seat of Christ and we will all look around and say, what was it all about? What were, what were we living for? Lord, don't bother me now. I've got a field to buy. I bought me a cow. I'm about to get married. I've got my own agenda here, Lord. I've got to, I've got to build my, my wealth. I've got business that I've got to take care of. I've got family priorities. Don't bother me now, Lord. Then one day, let it not be that any of us wake up one day and find ourselves with the rich man looking across that great divide. Because as, as uncomfortable as it sounds, this is not a manipulative statement. This is not a statement to cause us to think it's what Scripture says. It's what Jesus says. We're going to end up one day on one side of the divide or the other. And there is going to be a judgment. And the judgment will be about how we respond to lostness. How we've responded to Jesus and his salvation and his grace. Where are you going to be standing? Let it not be that you missed the mark and you got caught up in all the wrong things. The world has a narrative, but Jesus has another narrative. And I want to call you today to engage with lostness, 
to gaze with God's great narrative of salvation for the world, to give your life, whatever that means. I don't know what that means for you. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up going to the nations. It could for some of you. But it means there's a prioritization that happens in your heart and life. You need to pray. You need to look at your neighbours. You need to look at your family, your street. You need to look at the world around you with different glasses, not with political glasses, not with national glasses, but the glasses of God's love for humanity. God cares. And he has the agenda. Would you buy into his agenda? Let's all stand together. And as we pray, and for those of you online, just think of some way that you can be responding. Some way as you're sitting there thinking, well, how can I respond to this? Let's close our eyes. And if I was you, I'd be just putting my hands out in front of me just like this in an act of surrender to God. I'd just be thinking of all the things that we hold dear and precious all the things that we hold that consume our hearts and lives, and I just literally hand them to God. Those things that consume our our hearts and minds day after day, hand them to God. Our families, give them to God. Hand them over. Surrender to God. Then in your hands, pick up the mantle that God wants to give you to buy into his priority for lostness of the lost sheep, lost coins, of the lost world. And just say to God, here am I, use me. Surrender in a fresh way. Let's pray together. Jesus, we hear your call. Jesus, we respond to your great commission. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We look at the story of people like Vera who have responded to that whisper of God. We say, me too, Lord. Me too. You have everything. You can send me to the nations. You can send me to my, my family. Wherever you send me, I just say, me too, Lord. Help me to know you. Help me to buy into you. Help me to be moved by your heart and your compassion. Because, Lord, I want to join into the celebration of heaven. Pray in Jesus' name.